0: Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Wayman Chen, led by Mark Herman Lynch. My name is Ryan Stern, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Piikani, and Kainai First Nations as well as the Satina First Nation, comprising the Bears Paw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. In this interview, Mark Herman Lynch and Wayman Chen's talk centers around the idea of dichotomies, sometimes false, but even when not, rife with tension and always generative. Knowing and unknowing, the persona and the author, the scientific and the poetic, Chan discusses how these dualities inform his writing and process, as well as provides two readings from his astounding body of work. Mark Herman Lynch is a mixed-race author, currently doing his PhD in English at the University of Calgary and Acting President of Filling Station Magazine. He has been an event organizer around Calgary, most notably through Flywheel Reading Series, and worked with youth at Wordsworth Youth Writing Camp. His debut novel, Arborescent, was published by Arsenal Pulp Press in 2020. Finalist for the 2008 Governor General's Award for a second book of poetry, Noise from the Laundry, Wayman Chen divides his time between writing, family, electron micrographs, and non sequitur flexes in space-time brought on by insomnia, catfish. As poetry editor of Calgary's experimental literary magazine, Filling Station, He's convinced that multiple universes intersect the ways in which ideas intersect a single word. His latest poetry book, Human Tissue, A Primer for Not Knowing, examines rage and the quest for origin.
1: So, I'm here with the wonderful and incomparable Wayman Chan. Wayman is a stalwart figure within the Calgary community. He is a personal inspiration of mine, poetic especially, but also personally. And uh, so, we have him here today. He's going to do a couple readings for us and answer quite a few questions. So, I'm going to just let you jump in, Wayman, and read and give us a little bit of a, a background of what you're reading before you jump in.
2: Okay, thanks, Mark. And hello, everybody at Tia House, um, founded by, I believe, Larissa Lai, who's a good friend, and Mark, uh, who I've known for many years with Filling Station, and it's just an honor to be able to do a little informal chit chat about uh, poetry and um, just what uh, one poet uh, kind of uh, just does uh, in the day-to-day practice, which is no great alchemy. It's just, you know, being honest with uh, trying to put down some words on a page that reflect uh, who you are at that moment. And um, yeah, and and taking, it, taking into consideration how the world is constantly changing. Okay, so I'm going to read three poems uh, from my, um, I think it's the fourth book. <laughs> I don't know anymore. It's Chinese Blue. Um, and yeah, this one is called Alberta Blues. Oil on reserve and one out of seven jogs that our pond life will draw from the ground in this charmed, slurrying chickadee on a diamond toothed auger is spirit appeased by pipe smoke now carefully worded in civic treaties that ad hoc serious feathers for cash, looking down from the weather vane that points to roadkill. Aren't we magnifyingly brilliant to reach inside this desert's old green self? If the boy was a boy drawing himself in ruts of sidewalk chalk, pigs, paladins, jabberwocks to leave his wings of tar behind, deposing the lord of scarecrows to become me, then he succeeded. Every sulfide oracle fume, shaking hands with fields of mill rates and royalties while city gaps part the grass and teepee rings meet to disappear, our tick-boom logic will bounce any twig to flip its shiny bird. And so that's just kind of like Alberta oil at its best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, this next poem is a more personal one. Kind of, um, you can probably tell about the title. It's about uh, the history of the Chinese in Canada. And it's called Exclusion Principle. The cosmic meadow at dusk has no one ringing the bell to play his part. The sky is a blue railway, pushed through with sticks of dynamite. Dust may crumple, but the lettuce is sparkling. The foreground clangs off his vein, the celestial happy-go-lucky gold for faked citizenship. At night, the town swizzles with staked claims and letter writing. By day the greengrocer comes with the milk. Surely it's not the empties but the ruminant that remains. Grove of staked vegetables whose health in the dirt ricochets off the prong of the grower. Such freighted mooing gorges on feats of reclined power as the sky fills with rag soot again. Sunblade on the neck of night. Held there for the duration of its muscle. It's the image that lasts while people play out forgettably what sounded like dropped fork names ping pang, pong bounded down the stairs to the foot of the prairie. were are low we less than rain to those who came and went. The uh, reference to the ping pang, pong is this is this a uh, very old joke that I grew up with which was how does a Chinese. Um, family name its children, they throw a fork down the stairs, ping-pong-pong. The last poem I'll read from this book is called That Animal. <clears throat> and it, it, it kind of speaks to uh, growing up and then uh, when my mother died when I was two, then um, uh, we were put in uh, for two years in foster. And it's called That Animal. Crying myself silly when the barn doors of the orphanage closed in on my sister and me I became that animal that chews off its memory and limps away. Like all orphanages, the other animals bite, run, return. Faces swallowed by an unclaimed dark. Our foster mom claimed us. She wore a tartan that breathed my heart to hide in. That stalked so I hid in tree shade near the garage next to the hens. What should I have missed if it wasn't here to hold me? Can't say, can't ask. I'd bite others, stab them with pencils after learning what it is to cry out for an other. What would any unfinished monster do to find out how it cares as horribly as it learns to devour?
1: Thank you so much, Wayman. Hey? you welcome. This is very, very lovely. You know, I might actually even start with the last question that I have on our list Um, because I feel like for example uh, it talks about the biographical right and I think like for example your poetry does move between the sort of the biographical and also the historical Um, and so my question my first question to you is do you feel there's a large separation from the persona in your poems and yourself Mm -hmm. or do you feel that they're one and the same?
2: Um, I I don't think any writer can really um, separate You know what's on the page from themselves because they did write it they were in some kind of mental framework that was authentically them because they were in they were embodied and inhabited at the moment when they put their writing down and Mm -hmm. so I mean so it's just a matter of degree to which you put on masks right and and, um, find the delivery vehicle um, for whatever you're trying to do so let's say a poet is composing one-off poems which comes across in a in a manuscript of poems that become the book very differently from somebody with a much more um, structured conceit and intent behind their writing where they're actually composing pieces that are really linked in, in a grand scheme and so part of that grand scheme could be affecting a kind of persona Yeah. That yeah, yeah. you're consistently trying to channel. Yeah. so, you know, um, my latest project is different in that I'm trying to, in some of the poems, actually write from the point of view right. of something. So so, uh, in one of the poems in my latest book, I'm writing from the point of view of the sun shining into the car when my foster parents are bringing me back to Airdrie, you know. And I'm, I'm two years old and watching the sunset and the sun is speaking to me in its voice. Well, <clears throat> you know, that, of course, that, that piece of, is, is indefensibly tied in with who I am. Yeah. But then there's other poems that I try and speak from the point of view of an insect or something like that. Right.
1: It, it's interesting to think about kind of even the progression throughout your books of poetry, right? Because mm-hmm. if you think about hypoderm and uh, noise from the laundry, those seem to come right from a place of I. That sort of I mm-hmm. individual, that person. But in Chinese blue, and even on the back cover, it says there's a character, right? There's It seems to be a persona. But even in human tissue, it's more of an address to a you, right? I wonder yeah. um, how you feel about that kind of like progression. And now towards the insect and to the sun, to these, what yeah. we would say is inanimate or...
2: I think maybe a writer wants to try and, I mean, at least I do. I'd like to try and push the envelope a bit and tried new modes of communication right because there's only so many poems that one writes that are from a kind of established comfortable persona i mean you do get tired of your own writing <laughs> um,
1: do you so, you get cu- tired um, of your own writing I,
2: yeah yeah uh, well, if i'm going to write another poem from a bear, from a uh, a stance and a position of i right. that i'm so familiar with i mean it goes both ways it actually can strengthen you're writing because you've gotten more years of experience right. and more perspective in order to say something real, original, and ne- never tapped because you are starting from a, a point of view that you're comfortable with, but you're pushing your content because you're trying to say something that you've never said before. Right. But also the creativity can sometimes say, well, why don't you take the point of something? Right. Like there's one poem that the world might never see where I took the point of view of... Donald Trump's toupee <laughs> the man below him yes you know? yeah absolutely so that was a fun exercise but yeah. I think it's probably not going to make it into my next manuscript because it might be seen as you know just too far off really not me not myself and so maybe that comes back to the whole idea of how separated one feels against what they're saying and the poem that comes out yeah you know well it, and, your,
1: your poetry is quite funny right mm. I mean I'm not saying that as a, if I'm surprised by it. Like, your poetry is is very, very funny. I think, for example, Chinese Blue, especially, has this character, this wry voice, this wry character that allows you to kind of enter into much different subject matter, right?
2: Yeah, and that probably goes to sometimes having a certain inspiration for, for each book. Like, right. I know for Chinese Blue, I'm just uh, discovering Frank O'Hara's, you know, he's a New York poet from the late 50s into the mid 60s. And his voice, his unmistakable poetic voice, is very urbane and urban, kind of dry-witted. Mm-hmm. He, he's very ecphrastic because he worked at MoMA in, in Manhattan yeah. as a day job, really uh, curating international exhibits, chumming with all these visual artists who he admired, and would write the, the pieces that are part of the exhibition where he curates and See, so and, his, his but... writing itself the writing that of his poetry you know he's so like quick-witted in response to the moment-to-moment occurrences right in front of his very eyes yeah. and so maybe what you're seeing with Chinese Blue that book is just the this kind of gleeful response just to the things around me where I, I needed kind of like at that point in my writing with my fourth book I think I needed to be re-energized to just play with uh, what I'm seeing, and then, you know, take it in. Maybe not so much always a surrealistic direction, yeah. But at least one where I'm letting the the, the quick the quick firings of the imagination match with the moment-to-moment leaps from image to idea to a time shift yeah. from line to line in the poems, and maybe that's what you're seeing. And and that energy, I'm hoping will will always carry through me and and you know I, I did channel Frank O'Hara's spirit, that very his very individual kind of energy, his his pixie like point of view of the world. <laughs> yes. That yeah. and that kind of passion for just taking something and making it his. Well but, it,
1: it's interesting that he works very much and I think this is true throughout all of your poetry. He works within this maybe it's a false dichotomy, between the everyday and the transcendental, right? Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating how you move between those two. And Chinese blue does it with quite a bit of levity, which I, I always have found was really, really interesting. And that's why oh, I, like, I, I found like it's a very fascinating book. Um, to kind of uh, move on to another question, uh, this oh. kind of like brings me on to the next part of the, my question, is the subtitle of human tissue is a, says it's a primer for not knowing, right? So how oh, yeah. does this process of not knowing connect with your poetic creation, especially in terms of how you just spoke about how you're trying to investigate through other modes of, other viewpoint modes, right, other mm-hmm. other viewpoint characters, so to speak, right, yeah. in order to kind of like interrogate this material, that even though you've been looking at it deeply mm-hmm. under the microscope for such a long time, right, you're still mm-hmm. exploring and uncovering. Yeah so what is sorry uh, just to repeat my question how does this process of not knowing connect with your poetic creation
2: yeah it it goes back a long time (laughs) and maybe it is a disruption of my childhood not Mm. knowing because you know having you know early memories of of a mother and then that being torn away and not knowing what's going on around me as I'm being surrounded by yelling screaming children at, at the Bethany which back in the back in the day was, was uh, a children's shelter called the children's shelter, which is kids that are from broken homes without families, orphans, all mixed together. And I have these, and I'm, mind you, I'm two years old, and I have these glimpses burned into my mind of screaming children, one child biting me viciously on the arm, and and mm. no adults around, just screaming children. right? And, and, and then I'm not knowing what's going on. And I stopped speaking for two years, actually, with the trauma of that right you know and that's the body's response to shutting down really right. um so so the not knowing has i guess carried through you know and then as one grows up and starts to find that there's things to believe in because you know we're not pulled out of the womb with with a sign that says well this is what's going to happen yeah you know and in this and you you will die and when you die you know uh, you'll be going there 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 well there's you know and so you, you can only think that the biology of of all creatures is a very similar script. Yeah. You know, nobody's given any signposts when they pop out into the world. So, so I think that that preoccupation with where we <clears throat> where we've been, where we're going. I mean, it's one of the oldest stories. It it, it models all cultures' thinkings of what immortality is. Why some cultures have resurrection? Why they, they, yeah. some of cultures right. they have a very quiet kind of land at the dead where people just kind of walk around and don't eat you know right <laughs> so, right. so it, it's a whole gamut of of yeah. this is the biggest central question and it will never be answered except that from what we know is that we do have things called cells they divide and they and and we breathe and we go back to the earth and mm-hmm. then the cycle starts again and so that's really the only answer to continuance um right. that we know of because there's no one that really has and verifiably resurrected and come back to really tell us right um, right <laughs> so
1: but once we do that, once we have that then we'll know
2: <laughs> and so then and so then really that goes back to then when I was searching for something for my fifth book yeah uh, which is human tissue I was always in love with uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein story and that tells the, the perfect it's almost like is its own mini bible because it's one of the first pieces of literature that kind of made an antidote to to what it is to have a creation like uh, a a creator have a creation and not know what to do with it and so you have dr frankenstein creating this flesh being made up of bits of of morgue tissue all sewn together and electrified to come alive and and this this monster is just looking for nurturing and a reason for existence but he's so anti-beautiful that he's rejected and called a monster and then becomes murderous because he has no answer. It's a beautiful, symmetrical, all-encompassing of humans' best and worst, Yeah, is, is the Mary Shelley story. And so it drives this whole thing of not knowing. The quest for origins is, is also kind of like uh, wrapped up in, in, in the book Human Tissues.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of one line from Human Tissues that you were saying a body not knowing we enter a unity
3: right yeah yeah
1: it's, a, it's such a beautiful line because there is a sort of concept of fracturing and i think a lot of mm-hmm. times in your work fracturing fracturing of memory history time is very very mm-hmm. important it's almost uh, aonic or achronological right yeah,
0: um, yeah it's
1: very beautiful uh just to kind of like move with this just, just kind of like keep with this concept of not knowing Because it's very close to Fred Waugh's concept of faking it, right? This idea of we are moving away or pushing against this sort of authoritarian process of argument and logic. That these argument and logic are the things that have control over poetics. Um, And I find, for example, or actually, how do you find, for example, your poetic process pushes back against this?
2: against what again of, this of logic
1: like sorry yeah I guess it's not this is not a great question sorry I wanted to kind of like really thread it into this but you know how yeah. for example in faking it he just talks about the ideas that we're always perpetually discovering
3: right yeah
1: and that perpetual discovering is the answer once you mm-hmm. have an answer yeah. then you actually close off right and you you lose the sense of unity and I find for example your poetry does that so well Right, it always is breaking open and having answers, or not just creating answers. It's breaking it open and creating multiplicity. Um, Maybe that's more of a a thought, a comment, (laughs) than it is a question. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, just to gush over you a little bit more because you're so wonderful. So another question that I have for you: This is uh, with regards to an interview you did with the Malhad Review. So you connect Heisenberg's uncertainty principle to the authorial language rupture. And just to quote you, you say, Heisenberg says position is interchangeable with momentum, which also occurs when our language interfaces the world. The energy transfer simultaneously alters perspective and relative position of both. So I have small powers, but they're big to me. This authorial transfer of energy between sentient corpus, my life, and graphic residue, the poems. This concept seems to speak uh, to your writing process in general, but can you speak about how these movements of energy coalesce within your poems, either thematically, syntactically, or structurally?
2: Well, when I write, I'm really trying to capture what the mind is. Right. And, and if you took a recording, a magical recording of your brain for 10 seconds or, or a minute, you see that actually there, it's a resting state of random things. And so how can writing, and that's what distinguishes poetry in a way from, from the sequentiality of text, like documentation, essay, or, or fiction, is that there's, you know, there's no intent in moving the furniture because the furniture is just what it is moment to moment in the brain. Right. And so for one to be writing authentically, which is I think what poetry is, is that it has all these random things that are in place already. And of course most of us, because we're not insane, these things aren't shouting at us all the time. But if you were to just go into your mind, you would have this free association of anything and everything. You know, and it could have been from 40 years ago to now, and they're just sitting side by side with each other. Right. And so they are competing complexities. And so how, when I write, can I not kind of show that the competing complexities that exist in you at any moment How can they not be a part of the writing? To me, it's obvious that poetry is more of the mind than any other kind of writing. Right. So that's what I do. And really, I've always thought of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle because in a way, uh, it it actually speaks to the process, whether it's the writer who is writing their poem down or it's the reader looking at that text. Either way, what whenever you start translating something into language and setting it down it's already changed right because you've altered its positionality through your interrogation of the material because the original thought and impetus that put down that word has shifted in your head (laughs) and and that's and in a way you could say that that's kind of like you know putting a law of physics onto something Uh artificially or not but to me it's true you know the whole process of creativity is and, and read a response to that creativity which is now the, it's not just proselytizing and putting down something to be consumed in a one direct and in a unidirectional way right you, you know it's actually give-and-take between viewer and artist. and so for me the template uh, it, that's being set down is going to change because the energy of interrogation of looking and interpreting it when a reader looks at a poem it's pushing it's the energy is pushing those particles around right and it's changing their momentum and position. And so right. that's why that's why we have lawyers really because no matter <laughs> Right, yeah, sorry, but if you try yeah. to write down something that you thought was ironclad, interpreted yeah. only one way and one way alone, you are sadly mistaken. Right, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The best lawyer will find a way to, to to, pry apart the intentionality between the words and the phrases mm-hmm. and, and start chipping away at them to find loopholes into how what you thought was 100% clear. Yeah. And impregnably one one meaning only. Yeah. They'll they'll break it apart to say, well, you could have meant this and this and this. So that's just the nature of language is to be that malleable, that unexpected, that uncontrollable. And so when I write, I, I'm actually giving play to that. I'm actually welcoming it because I think a poet that wants to really represent the world has to represent many viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And ambiguity can be A deliberately powerful tool when you're writing something that you don't want to be too clear because you want multiple interpretations because you welcome the chaos
1: right of of
2: multiple interpretations because you know the reader is gonna have them out anyway you know you everybody has their own idea of what a door looks like you know what a scar looks like you know so yeah let the language play with the multiplicities yeah, and let things scatter. You know, just just like just like the molecules. You know, we're, we're we are these raging molecules of energy, kind of held together in in the macro world, but in the micro and the the, the particle, the subatomic,
3: yeah, you
2: know, world. <laughs> yeah. We're just we're just part. Of, we're just uh, shaky little particles. Yeah,
1: yeah, I love Does this. That answer the question. Yes, that answers <laughs> the question beautifully. It, it it almost reminds me of this idea in music right of uh, the affect of music you can if you just strike a note by itself right it just uh, hangs but depending upon the what which one comes after it it changes the momentum it changes into an arpeggio it feels yeah. like we have to this dynamism towards a climax or it needs a refrain it's very interesting what you're talking about in terms of these poetic transfusions right that will not transfusions necessarily, but mm-hmm. these poetic impulses that you put beside one another and then they create something suddenly. Mm-hmm. That's such a fascinating I just I love that concept.
2: Yeah, um, there's different there's different yeah. modes also for a writer because I think um, a writer is constantly dealing with the particular mm-hmm. and the universal and everything in between. And so which of these which of these urges um, comes to the fore when the writer is reading it? You know, or, or, I mean, yeah, I mean, when the writer is writing it or the reader is reading it, you know, right, right. Um, and and so context, uh, personal context, is always coming into play, and, and personal interest is always coming into play. Yeah. So, so you know, and and um, I think that's what causes me a lot of uh, difficulty in writing because you know I could be coming from a very particular approach and then realizing I'm writing something so obscure that, that um, I might be losing the bigger picture. So I'm constantly trying to change magnifications, so to speak, when, right. when I'm writing and then when I'm editing and when I'm reading it out loud, you know, and you, you might, some people might not know, but uh, magnification is it's important to me because um, my day job is with an electron microscope and, and yeah. the whole idea of, you think you see something, a certain mag, mm-hmm. the everyday magnification of your eyes, you know, it belies what is hidden underneath. And that goes with everything. You know, you, you could, you know, talk about just the whole idea of, of what um, a law, you know, of, of thou, shalt not, thou shalt not kill means. But right. when you start magnifying and breaking it down, well, it probably means all sorts of other intricacies that, that you can pry apart and investigate.
3: Yeah. And, and
2: so, um, yeah, the whole world is built of these different differing magnifications. I think um, a writer should should just go with that just just go with the not knowing of it the and the, the need to investigate and and that's mm-hmm. why life is a continual investigation and and what Fred says about faking it yeah we often we don't know and yet we still have to take a procedural approach based on our best guess right and so that's what makes life uh, fruitful worth living yeah. um, I don't know why I had to say that but um, well when this is viewed 500 years from now uh, one thing they need to know is that this interview occurred during the time of covid (laughs) life is worth living people (laughs) and we're all thinking why 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 what does it all mean when we're all so isolated yes yeah
1: yeah well i mean it's it's also just to
2: say that we, we, we are all a constellation of thinking breathing Uh, Vulnerable associations, and we all have to get through it and be kind to one another.
1: Well, uh, this uh, kind of like pushes me into my next question: is so, how do you feel like these types of connections, these types of this authorial transfer of energy that you talk about, that Mm -hmm. comes from the poet to the graphic meme, like the grapheme? Sorry. Yeah. How does that affect the readers? And do you think that there are wider, uh, widespread effects that this poetic impulse has?
2: Oh, yeah. And that's what, like I said, uh, that's what that's what keeps me rewriting and and worrying about my text is because I have to think of the different lenses that are and magnifications, you know, the particular to the universal Hmm. that that the text undergoes when it's out into the world and people look at it. Right. You know, you know, it's it's a feeling of, in a way. At times it can be very stultifying, and times it can be freeing, and,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I, I, I can still not second guess the, 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 um, the creative force that, that dictates how I'm going to respond to it, yeah. only that I've done it for a number of years, I've written now five books, working on my sixth book, it's always the same initial re- desire to say something. Right and whether it's um, just a, a, a musical chime between some words and a phrase, right? and then letting that stew in my head, and then it, it, it goes out on paper, it stews in my head, and starts mm-hmm. accreting more associative words, and then I see a narrative thread, which leads to another narrative thread. I'm, I'm not against narrative threads because I think a text can never get away from narrative. The act of writing creates a narrative, yeah. By default. Right, right. And and it's just a matter of where it goes from there, how I pour in my concerns and and always with the grand echo of not knowing.
3: Right.
2: I think the grand echo of not knowing is really something in my writing where I'm not I'm always conscious of what I don't know in the background right. and always trying to say something that might, I don't know, grasp at the stars somehow. Yeah. You know. In spite of that, um, and that is a really great kick because I think I mean I love the great void, the fact mm. that in a way that we're all going to be dust. I know that there's certain writers that believe in some kind of weird immortality, you know, which is just so foreign to me. Right. Like great unknowing. I mean, it's very Taoist in a way. Right. The great unknowing is supreme. Right. And I love that idea, that nobody is the arbiter of everything.
1: You know, you know the great knowing wins. You know it. Uh, it's interesting. Like it's almost like. Um, I meant
2: the great unknowing.
1: Oh, the great unknowing. <laughs> the great yeah. knowing wins. Oh, the knowing, loss. Knowing, loss. Yes. It's It's another dichotomy: the knowing and the unknowing. Right. Yeah. They keep winning and losing. <laughs> but it, it's interesting. It, it, it's funny how, for example, what you're talking about with the the lawyer putting the language on the microscope we can always talk about these sort of truisms, these truisms of we are all interconnected, so to speak, right? But when somebody says that, I always find, well, what does that mean, right? It seems Mm -hmm. so nebulous. Uh, What Mm -hmm. it seems like you're doing is you're putting that under the microscope, and you're not Mm -hmm. saying that there's an answer. It just is Mm -hmm. breaking apart a truism uh, Mm -hmm. until it's just... until it it feels tactile, almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's a writing process for me is sometimes... Yeah, a phrase that is a well-worn phrase, hmm. you know, or something, or a truism, I'd like to just pick apart in a poem. Interesting. And, and just rant and let, just let things fall into place, you know, and wow. create this new being. I mean, I've always thought of writing in a way as, you know, you, you do just start with, with some ideas, and they're like like nucleic acids, and then they sooner or less, more or less, eventually, through your associations, they randomly fall into place along... Some kind of uh, spiraling backbone, okay. you know, and and then and then you're and then it starts. You you create this inevitable creature, right? Uh, um, and so in a way, yeah, um, you know, I think that's why I like the whole idea of of, of, of the Mary Shelley, you know, Frankenstein yeah. thing, because it it does entertain the idea of humans being creators right. of of something that's truly tactile, truly organic, yeah. truly living and breathing, and and of course, you know. For some bus, it's just a poem. As for others, others like engineers, they're actually engineering, you know, AI, yeah. and and machines that do everything better than humans. And and there, one can say they are are more creators that will shape the world of the future than mm-hmm. somebody who's just writing a poem. But at the same time, the the desire is still a similar desire. Right. And and. Yeah, I, I'm not going to say much more on that, except that <laughs> I still believe that, that writing and ideas, you know, they're 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 so vital right. to, to to how the world progresses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do very much admire those those uh, engineers uh, of of the tech, no, of the tech, right. you know, and I wish I could do that. there there is the aspect that that that, um, that writing skill is part of that um, dynamic creative uh, force
3: Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and i I don't know that we necessarily need to kind of like prop up one or the other but they Mm -hmm. they do serve their purposes right yeah yeah, um just to kind of because because we talked a little bit about your writing process i just want to jump into maybe um a question about process actually uh so it seems like I, i don't know from talking with writers and talking with poets Every poet or writer has a pet peeve, right, of some sorts. Mine is when people use large, large concepts like the mind, right, without going into depth about it, when they just talk about the mind as if I know what they mean. So that's one of my pet peeves. Every time I see that word mind and it's not fully explicated, right, I find myself frustrated because it it seems insincere. Other poets, you know, just dislike in jammed lines with a preposition at the end right yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. do you have a, a pet peeve and why
2: yeah um you know the, old, the older i get the less pet peeves i have about about you know, about about qualities of writing and oh, little things because i think when you get close to your lifespan ending <laughs> it, it's almost like only the big things matter right and so i don't care about in jammed lines i don't care like one of my dear friends, is very wary of a poet that uses the word silence in the text.
1: Interesting, right?
2: Because, and I, and I remember my very first creative writing instructor, hmm. uh, Chris Wiseman, saying he hated anybody using the word soul, S O U L. Yeah. I hope he. I hope he's. You know, he's he's alive and well still. I think he's at ninety or something, and I hope he sees this because. <laughs> Yes, Dr. Wiseman, I do remember you saying you hate the word soul. And, it is, and it's for the same reason as Mark here is bringing it up. It's because sometimes a word is a crutch word because there is no, it, because then it forecloses for the writer mm-hmm. any more need to investigate further. And so you just come up with a word that kind of just is apt for the the, the, the poem to end. As right. Fred Waugh would say, for me particularly, because uh, when I was first writing in class under him, he was one of my first creative writing teachers, he said I had a tendency to end a poem with a pirouette off the porch. So Fred, if you're listening, I still remember that. Um, <laughs> because I would always try and make fancy the ending, Right, know. right. Um, because I remember that the poems that used to impress me the most had gorgeous, fancy endings, and of course, he knew then, and I know now, that the body of the poem did not support the pirouette off the porch, because. <laughs> You know, you got to kind of progress to yeah. earn the ending
3: Yeah,
2: and earn the word soul if you use soul, you got to damn well know, you know, what is the, the um, historical associations mm-hmm. most known as tropes to that word soul in order to then address them somehow and right. make your use of the word soul slightly more interesting, slightly more original. And so, um, but those pet peeves are small. Yeah, like with the word silence too. Right. I mean, what kind of silence, you know? Um, mm-hmm. it, it does the body of your poem then um, project and justify your use of the word silence, which better be timed very exactly to when you drop it in the writing. Right. And so timing is everything. As I get older, I see in the, in the poem that r- timing is everything for when you're going to use a word right. that everybody knows or when you're going to use a word that is deliberately obscure. Right. You know? And, and it's, it's all in the delivery. It's often just... Sometimes a poem can be saved just by reordering the lines. Right. But anyway, going back to the peeves, none of that really peeves me off. Okay. <laughs> it's just okay. experience and yeah, yeah. people can learn over time to become uh, more aware of their craft. Right. So, And, and everybody's on a journey. And that's not a peeve at all. That's just that's lovely that everybody's you know working towards yeah. something in, in their writing and in their personal um, exploration to yeah. become a better person. Yeah. Which and I think that that's my peeve is people who are not genuine, right. who, who whose ego is monstrously inhib- self-inhibiting and they don't even know it. Right. And right. and that the humility goes a long way in any craft in any right. art. Ask the best, ask right. the best practitioners. Guess what? They just happen to be full of humility because mm-hmm. they know how hard their craft is and uh, they don't have to be the star of the show. Right. So I think my biggest peeve is lack of humility right. and um, that that really it, it, it bothers me to no end.
3: Okay.
2: Um, another peeve might be and and might be a corollary of that and if, if you have an inflated sense of yourself maybe you as a writer feel you don't need to grow or Mm -hmm. feel you need to be empathetic to understand other modes styles of experience of of practicing of the craft etc
1: that you just understand and you don't have to do any
2: more digging yeah so they don't they themselves don't see the need to understand any different kind of writing they do not see the need to themselves push their own envelope Further, as the writer, right. that's a second pet peeve, which is the corollary of ego. Okay. And, and, um, okay. And I mm-hmm. think that probably the third is probably the same thing. That if if you're going to foreclose on that, what else are you foreclosing on? Are you foreclosing on writers that have a very spiritual aspect to their writing practice? Because right. you yourself don't you don't subscribe to any kind of spirituality you're you're agnostic or atheist so so what is foreclosing mm-hmm. you know your sense a real truly expansionist view of of compassion right. right so yeah yeah so ego and lack of compassion i guess aren't so um
1: my last i have a last two questions right they're kind of like okay. they're t- quite tied right? Okay. uh and then we'll do a little bit of your reading and uh yeah, call it a day. So okay. my, uh, my last set of questions for you has to do, yes. I guess it's a little bit more in terms of identity, right? But your poetry moves fluidly between European East Asian traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you say in uh, Noise for the Laundry, hackers from Prometheus and the Monkey King. Do you find this engagement is part of a dualism of competing cultural modes that you're trying to navigate, or do you feel you've created a sense of unity through your poetic practice?
2: Um, I think my unity is is that constant struggle, Mm. because you know from my past I was torn away from my mother tongue at age two when my mother died, put into a a foster family on a farm, (laughs) and and you know learning to speak, and I have these very vivid memories of not understanding a word they're saying as they're reading the early books to me about right. uh, Tip and the ball and, and Janet, whatever. <laughs> not understanding a damn word, but just seeing the beautiful pictures of a dog playing with the ball. You know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think when, when you have this internalized early memory you know of, a, of, of an identity and language and then you're torn from it and then you suddenly have this new kind of overlay mm-hmm. and then you spend the rest of your life almost feeling that you have to rescue that early part of you to me it's such a distinct duality right that it's not reconcilable in any sense except that the writing and the active process Right. Of discovering all you can about the self that was left behind in its language and in its place right. you know you know for myself anyway the, the, the duality is undeniable and it's constant and it's where I get the, the propulsiveness to right. keep interrogating uh, those snippets of childhood Chinese that I really I'm a grade one level Chinese speaker you know influencing and and, and that's all you're going to get but the, but the perspective of the next you know of the rest of my lifetime yeah. and the vocabulary in english i have to parse that out is, is really the way it generates this duality and to me it's it's the duality that creates this kind of patchwork frankensteinian um, unity right you know because that's all the that's the best i can do really but it, to me, it's beautiful. And, and yeah, I, I totally think that that's what I meant to do. Yeah, I don't know if that really answers the whole idea because maybe I just don't um, know what the, the history is of those who write about the unity of voice in, in, in a hybrid writer. I, I might not be familiar with the latest uh, criticism on what is said about that. All I know is from my experience, it's, it's, I'm all constantly, when I'm writing a piece, right. I'm choosing whether I want to include, you know, uh, Chinese words or, or start parsing it apart, you know, because it right. takes mental activity to do it. So I don't think I'm, I don't kind of like read back and forth between English and Chinese, like somebody who's fluently bilingual. Right. No, my my mine has a huge wall. You right. know, a psychological wall, historical wall that has to be leapt through um, to, to rescue one snippet and, and bring it into right. the other world. Right. Right. And it's a, very, it's a very different mind, I think, right. than, than somebody who has not had a violent rupture right. in, in their history like that. Right. So, so well, I, I don't know for sure, but I know <clears throat> it must be true for myself that there's this duality constantly at play. You know? Right.
1: And I think I think you did absolutely kind of like um, articulate it because th- what I think the assumption is is that we are always writing back to a culture that we're we're missing or we've lost, right? And then we have to kind of face up with the culture that we live in currently that yeah. has a lot of different maybe impulses that is pushing us in different directions that may be counter to even knowledge that we didn't even know we had, right? A sort mm-hmm, of upbringing mm-hmm. that is kind of a, a framework that is, the, it's almost like the juxtaposition of frameworks, right? The com- of yeah, conflicting yeah. frameworks.
2: Exactly. Competing uh, frameworks yes. is, is very well said, Mark. Yeah. And, and I do feel sometimes, because when you think of a high, a writer of hy- with, with hy- hybrid themes in their text, right. in their poetry, they, they do have a lot more over... Abundance of decisions to make than somebody who just writes from one tongue, right? You know, and 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 you can't and one can't deny the sophistication of some of the best writers of, of hybrid texts. You know, they're they you know they they investigate things that right. a writer in one in one language has no need to investigate, right? You know, yeah. and the nuances, yeah. and so so yeah, I'm I'm glad that I can kind of sit in both worlds that way. Yeah.
1: Well, and you also do it in another way. You do it between science and art,
3: right? Mm, It seems that the
1: tension between science and art, like, I mean, it's interesting to think about how it's typified within this dichotomy as the Mm -hmm. distinction between the cold, sterile, functional versus the playful, exuberant, but impractical, right? Mm -hmm. The poetic.
2: And I don't really see that dichotomy. I I kind of like marry the two because I have respect and love for... How they contribute to each other anyway? I don't see science as, as degrading the whole expression of of the um, the notions of of the creative mind or or the or these passions, right? I mean, right. I mean they're all interconnected. We just have science just gives us particular names yeah. for 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 you know the neuron and how it fires or the acetylcholine, you know, or or, or whatever it is. Those micro at in between synapses, whatever, you know, right. and, and it, it, it doesn't have to get in the way, but I know that sometimes the writing can be weighed down seemingly by, by the optics of other viewers that right. can say that they don't understand the words that are the science words. Why do you have to go there? Can't you just write about the flower and the human <laughs> and the bee? You know? And yes, you can, but I mean, yeah. like, science gives us yeah. all these intricate avenues to investigate further. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it could be just a matter of optics and, and what, what the, the reader expectation is. But certainly, uh, those of us who, who understand the science between things, we, mm-hmm. uh, of, of certain particular things, we, we, we would like to entertain writing yeah. that explores it a bit and, and maybe does use some of the heavy words that are hard to understand, but that's why the, the, the pocket oracle, i.e. the internet, i.e. your cell phone, yeah. lets you look up anything at that moment that we never had to use before. So a referentiality in texts is yeah. now just like everything else. When mm-hmm. your child comes talking about you know, something on TikTok, a word that you don't know, you can look it up now. Yeah. You know, and and, and be cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: So, yeah, we're in this world that we are we've become yeah. you know, this cyborg of sorts, um, whether we liked it or not anyway. So, yeah. you know, we're li- we are living in this this altered manufactured simulacrum overlay mm-hmm. that that in, in every aspect of it so maybe a writer that delves into that is just being a bit more honest to, mm-hmm. to, to what we're actually going through. And certainly I, I you know, I don't know the latest text, but I certainly feel how immersed we all are in it. So how can my writing not reflect that, right? Yeah. And also there's yeah, so much and, sound. And that, I think that ties in also to to what some of my friends have called, you know, the cult of the easy read, you know, right. and, and how, you know, do do we do we now are we now in this bifurcated kind of realm where some people you know are going to be tech savvy and others are just going to always want to absolve themselves from from knowing about anything else right you know so to what degree do we tolerate difficult texts in writing to me it's it's just inescapable something yeah. in life is going to be diff, uh, difficult in, in in, in communication and in your needing to interpret it. I mean, yeah. just look at all the legal leads that comes with uh, getting a mortgage, mm-hmm. you know, or, or you know, or, or you get into a car accident and suddenly you have to deal with that language. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, difficult language is everywhere. And so yeah. I, I think difficult language in poetry is just reflective of, of the world we live in. Mm-hmm. So I don't shy away from difficult occasions in the, in the text. Yeah. which is trying to really parse out something. <clears throat> um, I, I think that's just a part of, of, of the process of self-discovery.
1: Mm-hmm. And it seems yeah. almost um, like the schism is, like, one, it seems manufactured, right? Mm-hmm. There seems to be a, a strange sense of resentment towards the scientific literature, as if, you know, because mm-hmm. that scientific literature has a sense of authority, right? Yeah. Much like, for example, uh, there's a sort of, or seemingly... A sort of mm-hmm. sense of resentment towards the the poetic, because from the from the scientific side, because it has a sense of frivolity, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, th- that is a sort of strange dichotomy to make. I think they can yeah. they yeah. definitely can be married, and I think you do it so so well in your
2: texts. right? Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to say something about frivolity, I think that comes from a lightness of spirit, mm-hmm. you know. And I think you can be talking. Oh, Frank O'Hara does it so well, you know, where he's yeah. he's talking these lighthearted from frivolous things, you know, and, and yet he's talking about very serious things at the same time, like life and death. There's a poem of his called A Step Away From Them, where he's just going on his merry lunchtime, knowing, noticing a woman in furs, getting into a taxi, you know, the, 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 um, construction workers, and then zing, he's right into a very quick meditation about several people who died. Right. And then he ends it with, oh, but I'm now on my, finished my lunch break, and there's a book of poems in my pocket, you know? Right. And wow. so it's that lovely slide, which is real yeah. life. You know, We're sliding between frivolity and tragedy all the time. Right. So it's just a part of that whole yeah. mix of, of human experience, I guess.
1: Yeah. And how strange that frivolity can be an entrance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes.
2: Just as the scientific can
1: be an entrance as well right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be a closing off of boundaries.
2: Yeah. Right. And, and you know what? I was looking over my books before this interview, and I noticed how in a lot of my books I have one poem that is just about something very lighthearted, and the next poem is utterly, deeply tragic. Yeah. And it's almost like I like that. I, I like writing that disruption Right. in, right. in my in, in all of my books, really. it's It's almost like I'm geared towards that, because it creates then the space that allows the reader to expect anything.
1: Yeah. One of the poems that uh, you did it really well, I found, was Patternicity of Yowling Cats, right? Where you start mm-hmm. by talking uh, about the <laughs> seeing the virgin's buns on a crumpet and then seeing mm-hmm. Liz Taylor, right? Mm-hmm. To going to Liz Taylor's death to mm-hmm. these, uh, uh, what I think is a quite a profound question, should the Lord's shortbread taste like anybody else's? did he have a double set of eyelashes too? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, the, yeah, this movement between this levity, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to the deeply serious with, while keeping that um, profound, like a deeply serious, profound question. Yeah. seems to be a, a, a very key component of Chinese blue. And I found that very, very interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, what can I say? <laughs> it's You're just, just a uh, genius. <laughs> it's just um, how how the world rolls. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy one moment, and then something something gets um, me between the eyes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so one last question that I have for you, and then uh, we'll end with your reading, is you say in the Malahat interview, you speak about Jeannie Dong, a childhood friend of your sister's, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah as one of your first poetic inspirations. Do you remember parts of this poem, which is called Intense Spirits? Do you remember what aspects of this poem struck you most? How did you turn this initial poetic spark into a poetic practice that has now spanned decades?
2: Yeah, um, I just remember that she, um, Jeannie wrote this poem for my sister, and it was just a very small poem called Intense Spirits, and it was just a poem about their friendship hmm. very very delicate you know I thought it was beautiful simple hmm. I, I mean already I was I had notions of writing poetry then and I thought okay it's simple it's simple <laughs> but it, it was so honest yeah and kind and that never left me that uh, somebody could write something so deeply honest and and um, that would mean so much, right? And so I know that my poems don't are often very complex creatures, but definitely the inspiration um, that it provided to be able to write something moving, mm. and so a part of a sharing of myself to somebody else or something like that. You know, I mean, that's not left me. That, that, that power of expression through poetry has never left me. And so I'm glad you, I'm actually glad you asked that question, because, yeah, I mean, what, what does motivate somebody to write? I mean, right. to me, it's something deeply personal and honest about oneself and how, and it, it, it answers who you are in the world. Right. Um, what kind of being you are in the world. Yeah, it, it answers, it ticks all those boxes.
1: Thank you so much. Wayman Chan, everybody. Wayman Chan is the author of five books, right? Human Tissue, Chinese Blue, Noise from the Laundry, Hypoderm, uh, Notes to Myself, and uh, Before a Blue Sky Moon. And he also has a new uh, book coming out soon, his sixth book. It's yet to be named, but we look I... forward to it from Talon Books.
2: I've been having a hell of a time with the title.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so title to come. Uh, yes. We're going to end with Wayman uh, doing a little bit of a reading. And thank you, everybody, for uh, listening in and tuning in. And check out more of the Tia House podcasts. Go ahead, Wayman.
2: Okay, so I'm going to read, close off with three poems from uh, Human Tissue, A Primer for Not Knowing, my la- my latest book. And um, this is the poem that kind of speaks from the point of view of Something created like like a Frankensteinian uh, monster that doesn't know where they've come from. I was born not knowing. Pitch dark and momentary. My fluids pooled on treaty seven. They heard the undercry. Prairie bones greater than forced burial woke me to an air folk tune on dad's turntable. I was born not knowing. How church puddings, assisted living, teased from observatory static, willed one star to circle this wisp of a world. Extortion lotteries on dearly fracked Buffalo scrubland, plowing oil royalties till dark. Backward falling future into past, I was born not knowing why darkness starts under the bed. A child opens a book, weaves nuclei from absolute snow, populating a new page, and it hatches. Uh, The next poem is called Night Blooming Sirius, and it's a memory about my dad. What is it enters and finds us those stars that we might pull from it distant life, so that nothing shared comes closer than this heart sure beyond hope that we will continue out there. Motif Moonflower one year, the mimosa wilted to the touch. Resin lidded cells twist the jar on a life stilled as I move the electron beam across the fluorescent screen. One draws from conglomerate memory whatever moves us to stop hurting. So we divide and don't stop. Goniometers tum, a flower. Won't say how its reckless bulb grouts out from a serrated leaf. Spearlets globe to a white bouquet. Petals nearly drooping the minute they air out. Carousel, tropism, things you can't catch. Reason, necessity, the causes. Did you really think you had a choice? What I cannot help becomes no choice. And the last poem is called a parable. The hunting spider played dead when I smacked it with a book by Graham Greene. Half an hour later, it righted itself, checked its hinges and started crossing my bedroom carpet again. It had won. too scared to touch it. I blew it under the fridge. One sacred text mentions a bent arm for a pillow. Trouble and deprivation can be soft hearted that night in my pajama party dream. Mom was nowhere to be found. Everyone had gathered around a large aquarium to see this brown clam hanging off of a wedge of rot. I said who wants to see a new life form sugary strings vibrated those singing clam lips. The creature next to it was even more enchanting. A Venus flytrap elegantly sprawled. Piled at the ridge of her florid mast were two scarlet rows of eyes that flashed hard at us. She wore a crown of blue stinging bees that buzzed at our faces, daring us to defend our curiosities where they were not wanted. But, try as I might, I did not detect indignation from either creature on display, which meant that the burden to soothe And not wear out the only welcome they were ever going to get, blank parsecs across oases of intelligence, felt to me. That's it.
1: (laughs) Thank you again, Wayman Chan, everybody.
0: This interview of Wayman Chen by Mark Herman Lynch. I'm Ryan Stern, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stukel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababneh, Paul Minier. Joshua Whitehead, Ryan Stern, Mark Herman Lynch, Marjorie Ragunda. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.